Hi and welcome to this episode of Om Filosofers Liv och Tankar, a podcast where we discuss philosophy and philosophical, de- philosophical development with current philosophers. I'm Fredrik Eriksson, Leighton Librarian in Philosophy here at Lund University. And by my side, as per usual, I have... Martin Jensson, Senior Lecturer in Theoretical Philosophy at Lund University. And special guest today is Amy Thomason, uh, Daniel P. Stone, a professor of intellectual and moral philosophy at Dartmouth College, uh, and the author of several books and numer- numerous articles on many topics uh, in philosophy, including metaphysics, meta-ontology, philosophy of art, and philosophy of mind, and also this year's Puffendorf uh, lecture. So at the time of recording, uh, she is giving the second lecture this afternoon. Welcome to the podcast, Amy. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So as one of our ambitions is to uh, talk about our guests' philosophical development, why not start from the very beginning and how you remember your first philosophical thoughts? Yeah, I think if you want to go way back, probably probably my first philosophical thoughts were prompted by having been brought up in a religion. I was brought up Methodist, and I remember having lots of questions about the things I just could not make sense of, you know, even... The idea of heaven was supposed to be some consolation when someone died that I would see them again. But if I would see someone like my grandfather again, I couldn't make sense of this idea without thinking of it as, you know, really seeing them in space and time. But then there's questions about how's everyone going to fit and isn't it getting crowded? And, you know, will there still be room later? Um, And I guess this eventually progressed to, you know, suddenly seeing that the whole positive existence of God just didn't make sense. And maybe my sort of suspicion of religion that started from just being brought up trying to be a good kid who was brought to church um, probably still shows up to some extent in my suspicion of certain varieties of metaphysics and ways of doing it. I see. see. So what was your first encounter with philosophy as a subject? or? So when I um, started college as an undergraduate, I remember getting the the booklet of course offerings that I could choose from. Um, and you know, in the US it's quite open, you don't enter to study a, a particular subject. Um, and I read this course description of a class in metaphysics and epistemology. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know what either of those words meant, <laughs> but the description sounded fascinating and like it addressed many questions I'd had for a very long time. Um, so I signed up for it and it was a small seminar. There were only you know 15 of us around the table, which is very fortunate to have such a small group. And we started in discussing the um, classic texts from Aristotle all the way up at least through positivism a a bit a week. And uh, I guess I was hooked then. It was just fascinating. There's a small group of us that always went to lunch afterwards to continue discussing. Um, And after the end of that term, I declared a philosophy major. (laughs) Never looked back. (laughs) So where did you go to college? I was at Duke in North Carolina. Uh, so, so you, you already from the beginning had an interest in metaphysics then, yeah, and that stuck with you. It did. It did. Um, yeah, I mean, Duke had two routes of entry. You could start with the sort of metaphysics and epistemology, and or with the ethics end. And I think I never ended up taking any ethics during my whole undergraduate career. Um, I did a, a year abroad uh, studying at Oxford, and there you had to sort of do what the tutors could offer. Um, and I did a whole term studying nothing but Aristotle's metaphysics. So I got a pretty, uh, you know, serious basis in that at a young age. Um, so, yeah, I guess that's sort of the 
the questions that I was most interested in that I started on. Yeah. So I guess it's a natural progression then to start a PhD process. Was that like, or or did you ever like consider work, getting a normal job, whatever yeah, that is? Yeah, I had no idea what I wanted to do. You know, when I started college, and I I loved philosophy and did it, and it was actually uh, my dad who said the inevitable parent question: What will you do with this mm. as a career? And I said, I don't know. I'm enjoying learning. You know, the sort of standard undergraduate line. And he said, Well. You, you could go on to graduate school and then, you know, try to get a job as a professor. I was like, yeah, that sounds like a good, <laughs> a good idea, a good plan. So I, I did go on to graduate school um, and so, kept on that route. So that path was already parentally licensed. It was actually. Yeah. I mean, they had some reservations. I think my dad had a terrible graduate school experience in engineering, so a totally different field. So they had some concerns about this and said, you know, you might not want to, it's a very long process. You don't know what the road is at the end, you know, if you'll get a job. So they did insist that I take a second major that would enable me to get a job. What was that? that? So because it had to be a marketable (laughs) second major, I took on English. (laughs) Not most people's idea of a marketable second major, but their thinking was at least then I could get a job like teaching in a high school, uh, which you can't really teach philosophy in high school in the U.S. So they were satisfied with that. But but your dad wasn't an academic as well? No, no. He was a working engineer. He worked in um, nuclear engineering, especially in nuclear power plant safety. Worked for the government. Mm. Yeah. And so what were your sort of more specifically your interests at this stage? So what did you write your, your PhD thesis on? Yeah. So I went to graduate school thinking that I wanted to work in philosophy of art. I was always very interested in art, did a lot of painting and photography uh, in high school. Um, And then I also studied literature in college. Um, So I wanted to study philosophy of art, and I'd started out kind of in that direction in my PhD program. Um, And then just as I was writing my dissertation proposal, which for us is in your third year, because the first two years are coursework, um, my planned advisor passed away really suddenly um, and unexpectedly. And he was the only one who worked in philosophy of art. So I came back. I'd been in Germany at a German language program in the summer. And I came back, and David Woodruff Smith, who I'd had some courses with in Husserl and phenomenology, um, said, you know, we need to find a way to save you, <laughs> essentially. What can, what can you do? Um, and so I've been studying not only um, a philosophy of art, but also some metaphysics. We had these visiting metaphysicians who'd come through. There wasn't a metaphysician really permanently there. But I'd read uh, In Gardens, the Literary Work of Art with um, Wolfgang Easter in the Critical Theory Institute um, and also with Barry Smith and done some um, metaphysics with Barry Smith, looking at especially sort of um, phenomenological ontology and its heirs. And then David Armstrong came as a visitor. Um, Terry Parsons was at UC Irvine. He'd just written his book on non-existent objects with a sort of a Minogian way of understanding how we can refer to fictional characters and so on. So I talked with David Smith and thought that working on sort of the ontology of fictional characters would be a way to bring in my interest in philosophy of art and literature and what I knew about that, um, bring in what I knew of metaphysics, bring in phenomenology because of the Ingarden connection, and kind of triangulate to find a doable project given the support around. So that's why I ended up writing my dissertation on the ontology of fiction, um, really very much drawing on the work of the Polish phenomenologist Husserl student, uh, Roman Ingarden. 
Right. So is this still at Duke or? No, I went to University of California, Irvine for my PhD. So is this the book uh, Fiction and Metaphysics? And then that became the book Fiction and Metaphysics, sort of much revised after that. Yeah. yeah. So that's your most cited work today, I've noticed. I guess so, yeah. I checked out Google Scholar Uh and uh, I know cited well over a thousand times. Uh Can you say say something about it? What what is a fictional character in this context and how does it relate to metaphysics? Uh, I I don't really understand the connection here. Yeah, good. Okay. So when I came into the debate, and I was writing this in the mid-90s, right? talk about fictional characters had come into philosophy, mostly in philosophy of language, trying to figure out what happens in cases that people thought of as reference failure, that there is no Sherlock Holmes, Sherlock Holmes doesn't exist, so the term fails to refer. So can our sentences about Sherlock Holmes be true or false? Right? And there's some intuition that they can, that it's true to say Sherlock Holmes was a detective and false to say he was a plumber or something like that, right? And at that time, there were sort of two main routes of handling talk about fiction. One was the route, roughly what I was just describing to you, that would say, of course there are no fictional characters, right? And so we have to find some other way of understanding our talk about them. And the usual route was to say, well, it's simply true to say... Sherlock Holmes doesn't exist. To say Sherlock Holmes is a detective is just shorthand for saying there's this story, see, and according to the story, Sherlock Holmes exists and is a detective, right? What's called a story operator. Or shortly thereafter, a little after I was, uh, well, maybe about the same time I was writing this, uh, Kendall Walton's book came out, which would say, oh, it's not according to the story, but there's some game of pretend, a pretense game that's licensed by the works where we pretend that there was this detective and it's licensed to pretend he was a detective. Okay, that's one side to say no, no fictional objects. The other side was what were called the neo-Meinongians, so calling on Meinong, Alexis von Meinong, late 19th century Austrian philosopher, who thought that uh, the correlate of every noun, roughly, was some object, and some of these happen to not exist, and some exist. So the microphone in front of me, there's an existing object, right, the golden mountain, That still refers, he would say, but it refers to a non-existent object. So Terry Parsons, who was on my dissertation committee, aimed to revive this view, which Bertrand Russell made fun of and sort of set it out of the philosophical consciousness for 60 years or so. Yeah. (laughs) Meinong is primarily famous for being ridiculed by... Being ridiculed by Russell, exactly. So what Parsons did was to show how... You could make a Meinongian theory that was consistent, that didn't get into the kind of contradictions that Russell ridiculed it for. Um, so the other line of handling fictional characters, they all oh, are these kind of non-existent objects, but they're still these objects, and they, in some sense, have the properties ascribed to them in the story. Um, Ed Zalta was developing a similar view at the same time. And I came into this, and I thought, neither of these is quite right. So, you know, coming at it from the perspective of someone who'd studied literature, right, I know that we need a way to talk about fictional characters, not just as we pretend that what's said in the story is true, but if we do literary criticism and literary history, right, we can talk about, you know, the the characters of Jane Austen novels are more well-developed than any preceding characters, that there weren't any sympathetic female characters in German literature until, right, and so on, or that Shakespeare's characters were inspired by 
these older works, right? So we need these kind of external ways of talking about fictional characters. We also need a way of distinguishing between characters that do and don't exist in some sense, right? So you can say, for example, that the character of Harry Potter's adopted brother exists, but not Harry Potter's little sister, right? And if someone starts to tell you all about Harry Potter's little sister, you'll say, there's no such character, right? So we need a way to distinguish that. And we also need to respect the idea that fictional characters are created things that you know an author makes up that come into existence at a certain point in literary and cultural history. Because on the Meinongian view, these non-existent objects are sort of timeless. They don't exist before, they don't exist now, right? So what I aimed to do, again, sort of really building a lot on Roman Ingarden's work, was to develop a view of fictional characters according to which there are such things, we're not always just pretending about them, um, but they are a kind of abstract cultural creation that comes into existence in a certain place and time through the work of an author. They can even change over time. You, know, you revise the text or whatever. Um, and so they are relevantly similar to other abstract cultural creations like stories, for example, or symphonies or laws, laws of state, I mean, not laws of nature, but laws of state, uh, universities for that matter, right? So there's, and this got me interested in all manner of kind of cultural creations, especially abstract ones that have been little discussed in philosophy um, and how we could come to have a, a clearer understanding of these. Well, so, so that sounds like a, a new position or somewhat new? Yeah, I think it was new in the, analytic literature on metaphysics of fiction and philosophy of language of fiction. As I say, I built on the work of Roman Ingarden, so in that sense it wasn't from nothing, but it was unfamiliar to the area of discourse I brought it in. And of course I developed it in somewhat different terms and in a way that would respond to the concerns in philosophy of language and metaphysics of, of my day. And Ingarden was really more focused on works of literature than fictional characters as such too. So this work, um, the literary work of art is his sort of famous book on this which is really focused on giving a ontology of works of literature so but these cultural objects then they're sort of mind dependent objects yes. and ultimately cashed out in terms of people's beliefs or something like that so yeah so the way i draw out the view these are mind dependent objects they depend i draw out different senses of dependence so for coming into existence they depend on the intentional acts of an author, right? An author intending to create something, having certain kinds of thoughts and beliefs. Um, but in order to be properly fictional characters, rather than just imaginary or hallucinated or whatever, they also depend on some external foundation in, say, a copy of the text, which could be a physical copy or an electronic copy these days or a recording or whatever. Maybe even a perfect memory I allow for that. Sometimes it could be reproduced or used to reproduce a a public copy, but there has to be a public copy at some stage for them to count as fictional. And then for there to be a public copy, for there to be a story, you know, there also has to be a public language and people capable of understanding it and practices of storytelling that make this an exercise in the tradition of storytelling rather than lying or something else. So they also depend on these sort of broader cultural practices and attitudes. So, so considering how, how much the 
the book the dissertation was turned into has been cited. I, well, it, well, it could go either way. Either it was very well received or it was very... How, how was it received? Yeah, so <laughs> the very first review of it, and I was a, a kid then, really. You know, I was just fresh out of graduate school, was um, in the Times Literary Supplement by Steve Yablo, who made fun of it, roughly. Um, as thought, oh, well, you know, this is it during his fictionalist phase. And he's like, look, this is just taking fiction too seriously, right? Uh, to imagine that there really are these things out there, right? Obviously, other, in other avenues, it got more sympathy, I think, particularly from people in the philosophy of art literature. The American Society for Aesthetics was very interested and receptive. I mean, I think in some ways, things like Yablo's review set me on the track that landed me in a kind of deflationary approach to metaphysics that I'm still defending. Because my natural response to him was, what more are you thinking it would take for there to be fictional characters than for there to be authors writing stories and so on, that you think this is so mysterious that it's just taking it too seriously? And so I rather suspect people like, sorry, go ahead. No, so so he... He felt that you had thereby committed to something extravagant. Yes, yeah. yes, and that was a pretty common response, right? And I think people tend to imagine if you're committed to fictional characters, you're thinking there's this funky world, right, where the fictional people live, right, as if you could just see them, and that it's kind of a childish mm-hmm. and metaphysically extravagant yeah. view. But I think that's a misunderstanding of the position. But, but but I think it's hard to understand when a fictional character comes into existence. I mean, if I yes. do a little doodle on the paper, a character, does it exist in some way then? Or if I make a copy and start spreading it around, people start talking about it, does that change the the degree of existence of the fictional character? I mean, I guess it's hard to draw a line where it starts to exist. It's hard to draw a line. Yeah. Um, yeah so, I mean, a, a short direct answer is, I think, you know, if you doodle some new creature, you've got the public instantiation, right? Yes, there is a new fictional character. Mm. Whether it will go down in the history of graphic novels or not, we can wait and see. <laughs> 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 um, but yeah, you're, I mean, and this is another source of resistance to the idea of fictional characters, right? People refer back to like Quine's question, how many possible fat men are there in the doorway? I think they can't have any good identity conditions and so on. One thing I try to do in fiction and metaphysics is to respond to that challenge by laying out at least some existence and identity conditions for fictional characters. So some clear conditions under which we can say there is one created or there isn't one. This one's the same as that one. So I try to draw these out and also to emphasize there's very few things for which we have great identity conditions. It's hard to specify the exact conditions when a person comes into existence as well, right? Um, and yet most people would not want to deny that there are persons, right? Even worse for other artifacts, you know, boats famously, like Theseus's ship, uh, as you can change the planks and when do we have the same boat or not. So identity conditions are always kind of a problem. In a way, I deal with those in my most recent book, In Norms and Necessity, seeing them as um, reflections of the rules of use for our terms. And because we can be kind of indeterminate about exactly when we're going to say there is or there isn't a fictional character or there is or there isn't the same boat, 
there can be these indeterminacies in what we say about identity, but I don't think that's like metaphysically weird. I think that's just a reflection of the way we use language given the purposes we have. So you said that Diablo's review pushed you towards your current more deflationary stance. So, so what did you do when, at that point? Or did you start writing a new book or yeah. sort of just? So I think, I mean, in a way, I think the kind of deflationary stance was already implicit in the way I was looking at things, but Yablo's review kind of pushed me to make it more explicit. And I think it kind of came from my upbringing on phenomenology. I think that my approach to metaphysics is not that different than the kind of phenomenological approach to ontology that you see in people like Husserl and Ingarden, but not in the Neoquinians and not in Venom Wagon or Cider or so on. Um, so that started me in getting more reflective about what methodology I was using in making these claims, that there are fictional characters, that they depend on the existence of authors, and so on. I didn't immediately move to methodology. I did a paper uh, called Fictional Characters and Literary Practices that kind of followed up fictional, fiction and metaphysics and tried to make this methodology more explicit for fiction. But then the plan I'd always had in mind was to move from the case of fictional characters to generalize, to talk about other social and cultural objects. Because I felt like all of these had been largely neglected in recent analytic philosophy, tended to have an interest in you know, abstract Platonistic mathematical objects and propositions and things, or the concrete entities of the natural sciences, but to kind of neglect the mid-range social and cultural objects, especially the what I call abstract artifacts, like symphonies and universities and stories. So I plan to write this book on the ontology of social and cultural objects next, broadening the theory, taking the fictional character as a case in point. And as I was working on that, it came to my attention that um, many philosophers would deny that there are such ordinary objects, artifacts like tables and chairs, much less strange things like symphonies and stories. And so I thought I'd better spend a chapter replying to those <laughs> objections, you see where this is going, um, to sort of defend the interest in these objects and the rest of it. And that in planned chapter became the whole of the book, Ordinary Objects. And I never wrote the book on social and cultural objects. Yet. Yet, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I wrote a number of articles on artifacts on works of art, ontology of artifacts and works of art, and um, other uh, social kinds, but I never put it into a book. But yet. at this point, so, so is your, your view here so, uh, that it's clear that there are these objects, but saying that there are these objects have weaker implications that many have thought, or it's not such a strong commitment to say that there are symphonies than those who doubt that we are symphonies think. Is that? Yes, I think that's, I think that's fair. Um, so, you know, I try to go back to what are the ordinary criteria we'd appeal to when we say so-and-so has written a symphony, right? And that's all it takes. And so those who would deny these objects often have some higher standard in mind. Mm. Sometimes it's that they should play some sort of explanatory role in our best scientific theories, that they're things we have to quantify over. Or sometimes it's that they ought to be part of, you know, the fundamental furniture of the universe, right? This is sort of Ross Cameron's reason for thinking that um, musical works don't exist. Uh, we can find the sort of ultimate truth makers elsewhere. Um, 
sometimes, as in the fictional character case, it's thinking there'd have to be, I don't know, some other mysterious realm. Often it's put in terms of that have to be some extra object, and I just deny that, right? So I spend some time on those kinds of arguments and ordinary objects, too, and try to show why all those are misguided and why often I think both the realist and the eliminativist about many of these objects are equally well inflating the conditions it would take for there to be symphonies or fictional characters or whatever. So, so but... Is this also a move away from your position of, of your, your first book in terms of what existence entails? Or, or are you still sort of... I think not really. No. So, I mean, in the first book, I do more pay lip service to the idea that, oh, if there are fictional characters, we better have decent identity conditions and be able to refer to them and I try to show how you could adapt a kind of causal theory of reference in a way that will enable you to refer to them, try to lay out identity conditions. I mean, I was a graduate student when I wrote this, so I was responding to the demands of the time, right? Um, I've become more reflective about whether those are really legitimate demands or how legitimate they are. But I think I always had something like this, what more would it take, kind of attitude in mind. It just took me a while to be able to articulate that more completely and clearly um, and defend it. Um, so I think of what I've done over the course of my career mostly not as shifting views, but as kind of continually backing up to see what the presuppositions were of what I was doing and whether those can be defended and and so on. <laughs> right, I see. So it's first a step to meta-ontology and then to meta-meta. Yes, <laughs> you just keep backing up. <laughs> So it's about lowering the standard for the conditions of what exists. Yeah. Is that, am I understanding sort of, it correct? Yeah. yeah. Um, so both lowering it in the sense of, you know, not inflating it and also allowing it to vary depending on the kind of thing you're talking about. So almost all the criteria of existence that philosophers defend, they're appropriate for some kind of thing. Right. Here's another standard one, right? The Eliadic criterion, as it's called, to be real is to have causal powers. Okay, if you're positing a new fundamental particle and you're a physicist, sure, that sounds pretty good, right? Not so good if you're trying to apply it to numbers or even symphonies or whatever, right? Um, so I don't really get to this explicitly until chapter two of Ontology Made Easy. But there I try to lay out a way of understanding existence claims where to say that things of a certain kind exist is roughly to say that the application conditions for the term are fulfilled. I I would now broaden that a little more, but we can talk about that later. Um, And the application conditions for different terms will be different. So what it takes for there to be a fictional character is very different from what it takes for there to be a human for example. And so what we have is a more um, sort of a single criterion of existence in the sense that it always says P's exist if the application conditions for P are fulfilled, but then diversity at the level of what the application conditions for P are. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah. So that means that you both agree and deny that there's sort of a general form of existence <clears throat> because there's difference in the application and conditions, but it's still the form is always the same. The form is always the same, yeah. So what I claim to be offering is a kind of um, unified formal understanding 
of the term exists, right? So I don't, it doesn't require us to accept what Eli Hirsch calls quantifier variance that exists, can mean different things in different philosophers' mouths or whatever. So we have a unified formal understanding of exists, but then this will still give no unified substantive criteria of existence because the actual criteria for a P to exist will depend on what sort of thing P is. And I guess <clears throat> if you you can intend to say that one sort of thing exists in the sense of a, another thing existing that would then be false if you just sort of would be sort of a maybe a category mistake. Yes, or, yes uh, agreed. And one good case in point for this is fictional characters, right? Yeah. So we can say Sherlock Holmes, the fictional character exists, mm -hmm. but the person does not exist. Yeah. And these would take different conditions. Yeah. And you can, if you switch the conditions, you'll say two false things instead of two true things. Exactly. And so I tried to disentangle some puzzles about fiction, for example, in that way. Yeah. Uh, okay, so... One of your more recent books, you just mentioned that um, metaphysics make, made easy. Ontology made easy, yeah. Ontology made easy, sorry. 2015. Um, and that's where you sort of start spelling out this in terms of different application conditions, or did you have that before? That's where I do it most explicitly, right. yeah, and give an actual understanding of existence, which I take to be built on a Carnapian approach to... Can you say a little bit about the Canapian uh, element to it? So, I mean, I, roughly, I um, I see myself as, in the more recent work, starting with Ontology Made Easy, as defending and bringing back what you might broadly classify as an approach like Carnap's, rather than what most of my metaphysics colleagues think of as working in a sort of Quinean tradition, rightly or wrongly, there's some interpretive issues there. Um, and that means roughly thinking that there's two kinds of questions, right? Internal questions and external questions, according to Carnap. So there's questions, the external questions interpreted in a way that's meaningful and understandable, would ask questions about what sort of linguistic framework we should adopt. Internal questions are questions asked using that linguistic framework. So existence questions on this model then would be questions that we ask, so if they're internal, right, which is the only sense Carnap thought in which they have sense, would be questions we have to resolve using the rules of the linguistic framework we have. And then in my way of speaking, this involves figuring out what are the application conditions for fictional character, table, symphony, whatever, and are they fulfilled? Um, and then, you know, people like uh, Peter van Neumagen refer back to Carnap as a source of the idea that the quantifier exists, just has one sort of formal meaning that's interchangeable with um, claims about number to exist, is to say that P's exist, is to say there's at least one P. Um, as opposed to a kind of quantifier variance view like Hirsch's. So there's a kind of two roots. I see. So, so what's the linguistic framework here? Is it, it's a language practice or? Yeah, I think it's a, um, 
it's roughly a language with certain kinds of rules for use of the expression in the language that connect them to each other and inferentially. Um, and then we can, so in, you know, the way Carnap develops it, we can add on to, we all are brought up into a basic language practice, what, what Carnap calls the thing language, right, where we can refer to tables and flowers and trees. And then there's certain additions to that we can make, for example, a framework that will enable us to speak of propositions or numbers or other abstract entities by giving certain rules for the introduction of these singular terms to the language and then enabling us eventually to quantify over them, say, there are odd numbers or things like that. Yeah. So more about ontology made easy. Uh, I mean, I, I was hoping it meant ontology for dummies, but it's really <laughs> not, I guess. But but what what is it the easy aspect of, of the book, Ontology okay. Made Easy? So, yeah, I mean, it, it was a little bit of a a play on words, right? It, it was, that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that risks getting it put in the wrong section of the bookstore. But. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so here's the sense in which it's easy. So most of my contemporaries in metaphysics, especially in the U.S., think of the project of ontology as answering questions about what exists in a way that is what Ted Sider's phrase is epistemically metaphysical. That is to say, it takes metaphysics to answer it, and we can't answer it either by conceptual analysis nor by empirical methods, say, of the sciences, or presumably any straightforward combination of these. And so we have to appeal to criteria like, you know, inference to the best explanation, but in a metaphysical way and so on, in order to answer questions about what exists or what's fundamental. Now, for me, that's super mysterious. And maybe this comes back to some of the general suspicions I mentioned at the very beginning. And this mystery has played out in recent metaphysics where we get greater and greater proliferation of metaphysical views of what exists. Some people even denying that there are tables and chairs, denying that there are persons, saying there's only myriological sums or particles arranged dog-wise but not dogs. Or, right, you get all sorts of competing metaphysical views, many of which I think to the layperson would sound comical, mm. right? Um, and no clear way of deciding among them, which is right. And the, the practitioners are very serious about this, that at most one of these is true and they'll fight each other, right? But it's not at all clear what the criteria are. And even when they appeal to theoretic virtues to distinguish this, they're often just trading off in one theory for another, which theoretic virtue they have, if they do more on simplicity or explanatory power. Seems to me kind of hopeless and mysterious and have nothing like the kind of convergence on the truth that we hope for from our empirical theories. That's hard metaphysics. So to say ontology is made easy is to say that those existence questions that are meaningful and answerable anyway, and there's a few that I think are just ill-formed, um, can be answered by some combination of either conceptual work and or empirical work. And nothing deeper, nothing more mysterious is, is needed. Now, conceptual work can be hard, and empirical work can be hard, right? It can take lifetimes of scientific work to discover if there are black holes, for example. So it's not easy necessarily in the sense that it can be done 
in an afternoon, <laughs> right? But it is easy in the sense that it's non-mysterious and relies only on familiar and tractable things like conceptual analysis and straightforward empirical inquiry. And which of those is involved and how much will depend on what kind of existence question it is. So questions about the existence of numbers, I think, can be answered through conceptual means by understanding the rules of use for our number terms. Questions about the existence of tables or black holes require empirical means. For tables, it's easy. For black holes, more difficult. So uh, in yesterday's lecture, you, you mentioned um, grammatical metaphors. And if I understood you correctly, you sort of um, see many inferences done in metaphysics as sort of um, featuring such metaphors. For instance, the transition from the Barney's red to Verissa property red yeah. uh, is, is uh, an example of that. How, how Can you explain what a grammatical metaphor is and how it fits into this view of easy ontology? Yeah. So grammatical metaphor, as you know, is a, is a term that was introduced in the work of systemic functional linguistics, especially Michael Halliday. And I have some hesitation about the term because it sounds like I'm being a fictionalist then, which I don't want to be. Um, so as I mentioned in the lecture yesterday, metaphor literally just means a transfer. So what happens in grammatical metaphors is we have a sort of licensed linguistic rule that entitles us to make grammatical transformations from saying the barn is red to the barn has the property of redness, or from saying she bathed to saying she took a bath, or from saying there are two glasses on the table to saying the number of glasses is two. So this is what enables us to introduce new terms, often though not always noun terms, on the basis of prior statements that involve no such noun terms. So these are roughly the same as what goes on with what I call in Ontology Made Easy, easy ontological inferences. And Stephen Schiffer had did this before, we call pleonastic inferences, right? So the idea there is that often we can answer existence questions. Do tables exist? Do properties exist? Do numbers exist? By making really what are trivial or free inferences from claims that don't involve that same noun term, right? So we can, for example, move from saying the barn is red. Suppose that's non-controversial. It's really obviously red barn like mine, right? You can move from there freely. It just sounds wordier to most people to say, so the barn has the property of redness. But from there, you can also move to say, so there is a property of redness the barn has. Now you've answered the existence question about properties, in this case, very easily, by a sort of trivial license inference from an obvious truth that the barn is red. Right? So I'd been working on these easy inferences. I ran across this idea of grammatical metaphors in the linguistics literature. And the cool thing about that for me is that that also then gives a story about why we need a language and would want a language that entitles us to make these grammatical transformations, to introduce new noun terms in order to do new things with the texts, to build scientific theories and bureaucracies, for example. Right. Uh, 
so that's really really interesting so and and yeah on your view that sort of solves the question of whether there are properties it's just yes so it's just since it, there is such a license to do that transition in the language there are properties uh, and how does that relate to the application conditions you talked about? Yeah, okay. So there's different views you could have about property talk, right? This is part of the indeterminacy in our linguistic rules, I think. And this gets reflected in whether you're a Platonist or an Aristotelian about properties and universals. But suppose you're an Aristotelian. That is, you think that properties or universals only exist if there's instances of them, right? Then, and I think our normal rules for property language are just not so specific. Um, then you think that there's a licensed inference from X is red to X has the property of being red. And similarly for X is F to X has the property of Fness, right? Um, so, in this case, if you're Aristotelian about properties, you might say the application conditions for property language are that something is F, and that's all it takes for there to be a property of Fness. Now, if you're a Platonist, the talk of application conditions is a little less well-fitting. I might talk more generally about success conditions. But here's the deal, right? So a Platonist will want to say, well, suppose you are wearing strange glasses and the barn isn't red, Right. Still, from the truth, the barn isn't red. You're entitled to say there is a property that the barn lacks, namely redness. Right. And so then you can say that the success conditions for property language are kind of guaranteed to be fulfilled, regardless of how the empirical conditions of the world are. And you can get a yes answer to are there properties, regardless of whether the property is instantiated. I see. So, but if if sort of. Uh... On your view, there's still still a debate here between Aristotelians and uh, and Platonists. There is, and we can think of it in two ways. On my view, so traditionally we think of it as a debate about what properties really are, right? Um, I would instead think that what's at issue here is either how we should interpret our regular property talk, which is the best analysis of it, and this might even require some empirical work, um, or about how our property talk should be, how we should reconstruct it or precisify it, right? And then we have to figure out what we want it for, why we ought to go in one direction rather than another, and what that will do for us. And either of those can be perfectly legitimate debates, but debates that don't require a kind of deep metaphysical peering into the world to find out the true essence of properties, whatever that would involve. Right, right. And so... I see. And then what about sort of debates between proponents of um, properties as universals or as sort of trope theories? How does that fit in? Is that the same kind of? Sort of, yeah. So short version. I think there are properties. I think there are universals. I think there are tropes, right? So I think that, you know, trope talk 
is fine. I think there are tropes. Question is, and I don't think, so I think the debate between trope theorists and the defenders of universals is kind of a faulty debate. I think there are universals and there are tropes and we don't have to choose between them. Now, why does it look like a debate? So on the one hand, I think a lot of, if I remember the history right, trope theory was often inspired by a suspicion of abstract entities. And I think that suspicion is totally misguided, right? It involves the wrong idea of what we're doing in metaphysics and of how property talk works. We got no reason for the suspicion. So then you can introduce trope talk. What do we want it for, right? Since I'm just thinking to, to better understand it, so one central um, point of conflict is whether or not, if you have two instances of red, whether or not they are literally, numerically identical uh, or not. And is, is that then a, a faulty question or if so, why? Uh, yeah, so it's a... Um or misguided question. It's a misguided question, I think I would say. I mean, it doesn't mean we can't answer it. So, I mean, if you have a way of talking about properties that says if you've got exact resemblance, then you've got the same property, say for color mm. properties, sure, we can answer it. We can say, yes, the same property is in the barn and the house. The reason this gets a lot of discussion is because people will say things like, oh, but this is deeply mysterious. How could one and the same thing be in two different places at the same time. And I think the sense of mystery there that leads people to be suspicious of it, and in part leads people to retreat to trope theory, for example, comes from a false analogy with thinking of property talk on analogy with talk about dogs. Yeah, a dog can't be in two places at the same time, right? And that's in part because of the rules of use for our dog names that mean Fido's got to track some spatiotemporal individual that I'm in causal contact with, but property talk works by different rules that entitles us to introduce it equally well from any of a number of different instances, maybe even from no instance at all. Right? So there's no such rule that requires spatiotemporal continuity for identity of property. And this just seems like a problem because we're thinking on analogy with the right. sort of congruent observational term. So it's something like a category mistake, right. roughly. Um. But thinking of these two legi legitimate uh, practices, the sort of more descriptive one and the more normative one that you mentioned earlier, how to think about what we're doing in, uh, in metaphysics, I guess that kind of argument of analogy between two different practices could be part of why we chose a particular way to think about properties, because there is this correspondence between object talk and and property talk, that, does that sound reasonable? Are you thinking that comes in at the sort of normative level of? Yes, so, so if you, you have sort of a, a concept engineering perspective or you're trying to do some, some um, uh, conceptual work for a particular purpose, then streamlining different practices might be a, a value in Yes. In, in, uh, in doing that. Yes, absolutely. So some of my recent work, and this is something I'll be talking about in the third lecture here, um, involves trying to show how we can kind of reinterpret a number of classic debates in metaphysics as really debates in conceptual engineering, how we should understand a concept. 
often for certain purposes. And this can go not only for debates about how to understand property talk, but about personal identity, how we should understand person, for example, or death, or any any of a number of other contentious concepts. Right. And of course, if, if purposes are different, there's no genuine conflict between Exactly. Them. Exactly. Yeah. And so a lot of positions people have thought of as conflicting aren't really. Um, so, so Ontology of Medis uh, was published in 2015? 15, yeah. Yeah. So, so what have you done after that was published? Taking so, a step back. Yeah, I think another step back, sort of, yes. Um, so, right, so the sort of deflationary meta-ontological views I've been developing started at the end, the last chapter of Ordinary Objects. That was the most controversial chapter of that book. Since then, I've been trying to, that chapter's exploded now into, it will be three books eventually. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there it goes. Um, so if you think of the project as developing a kind of deflationary approach to metaphysics, you can think of metaphysics as centrally, probably not exclusively, focused on two sorts of questions, existence questions and modal questions. So ontology made easy focuses on the existence questions and how can we understand these easily, right? The follow-up book to that, Norms and Necessity, which came out in 2020, focuses on the modal questions. And a lot of the other classic debates of metaphysics about conditions for personal identity, for example, or the, um, you know, what kinds of change a statue could survive versus the clay, etc. These are all at least implicitly modal questions questions, what kinds of change could be survived, when would a person be identical to A to a person B, and so on. So in Norms and Necessity, I try to show how we can understand all of this kind of metaphysical modal talk about what's metaphysically necessary or possible as roughly, this is where the sort of pragmatist side of my work really starts to come out, as not aiming to describe some deep kinds of properties of being metaphysically necessary or possible, either in this world nor still less describing what goes on in other possible worlds, right? But as doing something else other than describing, namely, roughly, as trying to mandate or convey or sometimes revise, press for revisions of, rules of use for our terms, right? So... For example, if we say um, a a lump of clay could survive a drastic change in shape, but a statue can't, right, then roughly what we're doing is, in the object language, sort of giving voice to the rules of use for the terms. If you've got a statue and it gets squashed, don't assume you're entitled to say that's the same statue anymore. If you've got a lump of clay and it gets squashed, sure, you're totally entitled to say that's the same lump of clay, right? So by trying to treat um, modal questions as object language reflections of our rules of use, sometimes as combined also with empirical facts, right? Maybe a statue can't survive temperatures above a certain number, but we have to find out empirically which temperatures those are that will change the shape of the statue, right? Um, Again, we make our answers to modal questions accessible in ways that don't require anything other than conceptual mastery and sometimes empirical work. So we again kind of demystify these and make it possible to know what's metaphysically possible or necessary 
and cases that are left over where it's not clear, like we were talking about earlier, the way in which many of our identity conditions are not fully determinate, that's where I think we're doing something else. We're engaged in what um, David Plunkett and Tim Sundell call metalinguistic negotiation, trying to figure out how we ought to use or ought to precisify these terms and pushing for what the rules ought to be. So that foray into conceptual engineering comes in sort of at the end of Norms and Necessity. So that book kind of brings out, it handles the modal questions. It brings out more explicitly this pragmatist side of work that says look to how the language functions and not just assume that everything is world describing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it starts to take this sort of practical turn into thinking of what we can do and often have done in metaphysics as a kind of conceptual engineering work. It seems like you want to make metaphysics uh, clearer. Yes, and, absolutely. Uh, so I'm thinking like um, metaphysics isn't that accessible, but, but, but is there a way for, for metaphysics to play a role in other fields such as humanities, social sciences, and stuff like that? Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things I like about the kind of conceptual engineering approach to metaphysics, which is sort of where I've turned now, and that'll be the next book that I'm working on, is that it brings all those into the fold in a way, right? So part of what you're doing in, um, you know, a lot of the traditional work in the humanities too is things like analyzing the history of a certain concept, right? I had a friend who worked in a German department who worked on, you know, the concept of childhood and how this has developed over time, right? This is conceptual work that we study by looking at texts and how it's been reconstructed. This is work in what um, Katarina Dutil-Novais calls conceptual genealogy, right? And that's part of conceptual engineering. You want to know where our concepts have come from Mm. to figure out what purposes they've served and what purposes they can serve and if we want to get rid of them or change them or not. It's also super relevant to the social sciences, right? Um, So, you know, if you're going to study, for example, uh, religions in Africa, right, you better come to it with an understanding of what a religion is, What's going to count as a religion and, and what's not, right? And this is both conceptual analysis and sometimes conceptual engineering of what should count as a religion. Also important to law, of course, if you're trying to offer legal protection to religions, what counts as religion, right? What counts as race and gender, right? This is a huge issue in conceptual engineering, centrally relevant to questions in sociology and other social sciences. Psychology is enormous, right? I mean, every few years, what the psychiatrists meet and discuss the diagnostic and statistical manual and how we should define different kinds of mental disorders, right? And redefine them and reclassify them. That's conceptual engineering. So a kind of neat thing, I think, about rethinking metaphysics as conceptual engineering is it shows the ways in which this kind of work that I would say is also done and should be done in metaphysics is relevant for the laws we form, for our work in the other areas of the humanities, for our work in the social sciences, also in the natural sciences, right? Think about the redefinition of planet a few years ago, the ways biologists are haggling over how to define species and so on. So it's got kind of relevance all over the place. So if I understand it correctly, sort of, so we're almost at present day now in the sort of chronicle yeah. of, your, of, of your thought that you sort of have gradually refined and reviewed the presuppositions of something that you initially sort of an, an initial idea or an, an initial approach to 
to metaphysics, but have there been any major breaks in your thought or sort of the presuppositions that you've you've abandoned or shifts in your your development uh, as a philosopher? Yeah, I mean, I've changed in details on things I would say and things, but I think the biggest kind of turning point for me was really a kind of discovery of the pragmatist outlook, especially the neo-pragmatist outlook. I spent some time um, working with Hugh Price. I visited in Australia a couple of times, um, went to a bunch of conferences. And I think I had, like so many metaphysicians, kind of uncritically assumed a kind of descriptive view of language. So when I was asking about fictional characters or social and cultural objects, I was asking roughly what the application conditions are for the term. What does it take of the world for there to be such things? And so the kind of functional pluralist idea that says, hey, not all language is just aiming to describe the world. Some aims to do other things like communicate the rules of use for our terms or maybe for moral talk, regulate our behavior or as Simon Blackburn would put it, express attitudes, right? Or something like that. I think that's been the biggest turning point in my work. In some ways, I was kind of ripe for it because I, I teach Heidegger all the time in my existentialism class, right? Mm-hmm. So I was attuned to the way that, you know, in talking about tables, we're not just describing the world, but also imposing ways in which we are to use them and interact with them, mm-hmm. other ways that they are to figure in our social practices. So I was kind of ready for it. And it wasn't, I think, a change that required a lot of revisions in what I'd done, but it definitely opened up a whole new range of possibilities for me in solving philosophical problems and seeing why some old problems are pseudo-problems and how to attack them. So I think that's been the biggest turn. And it's quite recent then? Yeah. I mean, I think in my published work, you can really see it coming out between the 2015 ontology made easy and the 2020 norms and necessities. So it's really a norms and necessity that you start to see that more clearly. You can see it a little bit in Ontology Made Easy. The very last chapter, I criticize Ted Sider's view of um, logical terms as aiming to track the logical structure of the world as mistaking what the role of logical discourse is and logical terms is building on some work by John McFarlane. So that's starting to get at the functional pluralist idea. And even the Carnapian idea, again, starts to get at this idea that in asking external questions, what we can be doing is asking should questions, what linguistic framework should we adopt? So there's little traces of it around then. I probably started thinking in this way more around 2010 or so, but it doesn't really come out firmly and clearly in my published work, I think, until norms of necessity and also some of my work on conceptual engineering, which is starts... I think in roughly the same period. Um, uh, we need to conclude at this point. Thanks you so much for for uh, joining us today and talking to to us. Thank you for having me. And also thank you to Larm Studio and Peter for helping us with the sound. Thank you very much. <laughs>